everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your local mythologist, Catherine Svela. I live in Joshua Tree, and I'm pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free, Joshua Tree. In the first days, in the very first days, in the first nights, in the very first nights, in the first years, in the very first years, in the first days when everything needed was brought into being, in the first days when everything needed was properly nourished, when bread was baked in the shrines of the land and bread was tasted in the homes of the land, when heaven had moved away from earth and earth had separated from heaven and the name of man was fixed. When the sky god, On, had carried off the heavens, and the air god, Onli, had carried off the earth. When the queen of the great below, Arishkagel, was given the underworld for her domain, he set sail. The father set sail. Anki, the god of wisdom, set sail for the underworld. Those are the opening lines from the very first hymn in the Sumerian myth of Anana. That hymn is called the Hulupu tree, and I'm going to pick up where those lines left off in a few minutes when I tell you this story. The translation that I've read that from is called Anana, Queen of Heaven and Earth, her stories and hymns from Sumer, and it was a collaboration between storyteller Diane Wolkstein and uh, Samuel Noah Kramer, who was a scholar of Sumerian civilizations. This program is the first in a series of four that I'm going to use to tell you the story of Inanna. It's one of the most useful and beautiful stories that I know for the path that it describes and the images it provides about the initiation into the mysteries of life and the transformation that brings. If we're lucky, (laughs) at least once in life, the ego and its fantasies, our daylight consciousness and habitual personas are not only challenged but completely deconstructed and torn down. It's not an easy process. A wide variety of circumstances can bring this about. It might be illness, divorce, addiction, really the loss of anything or anyone that you deeply value and identify with or rely on. But it also might come at a time when everything in the outer life is quite good and stable. But there's that something inside, something at the soul level that's missing or required something that's been ignored, or maybe something that's calling, that's urging us on to a deeper relationship with life. This is not an experience that we typically sign up for, and we may only be able to appreciate it in retrospect, which is one of the reasons why stories like the myth of Inanna and her descent to the underworld are so valuable. There's a lot of difficulty and fear involved in the real life experiences of this type of descent. 
And so it's marvelous to have stories like this one to use to consider and reflect on that great opportunity and challenge. Spiritual teachers from around the globe for millennia have advised us to consider ourselves and the possibility of trouble and to reflect on the deep questions of life when we can, to not wait until we're in the grip of something terrifying and difficult to plumb our own depths. Good advice, of course, not always taken. So wherever you are in your life right now, whether things are going smooth and easy or you're finding yourself faced with some real struggles, let's turn to the story of Inanna and find out what this goddess can tell us about the path down, the way back up, and why such a descent might be necessary in the first place. So the mythologies of Inanna begin with her as a young woman. And this is really where my love affair with her begins because she's she's so ambitious and energetic. I mean, basically, in the very first story about her, we're told that when the world is first created, there is a great tree, one great tree that is planted on the banks of the Euphrates River. And the god Anki, who is the god of wisdom, and his name will come up again later on, he makes a journey to the underworld. And while he's attempting to do this, there's a huge storm and it uproots the tree. The tree floats down the river and Inanna sees it and she fishes it out and she replants it in her garden. And when the tree gets big, her idea is that she'll use it to make a bed and a throne. A bed and a throne. So the tree grows. She wants to cut it down. Some nasty creatures have taken up residence in it and they won't leave. And so she ends up going to Gilgamesh, who is the same Gilgamesh with his own mythologies. And he runs off the nasty creatures, which include Lilith, who some people associate with Eve as being the woman that predated Eve. And anyway, Gilgamesh runs everybody off, and he builds Inanna this throne and this bed. And so then she's in business. Well, so as a young woman, meant to be queen, because Inanna is the queen of heaven and earth, her next move is to go and visit her grandfather, Anki, the god of wisdom. And when she gets to his house, his servant goes and says, okay, there's this young woman at the gates, you know, and Anki looks and he sees that it's Inanna and he says, oh, it's Inanna, she's my daughter, I love her, I want to be really good to her, bring her in, set her down at the table, get her some cake to eat, and I'll come down and join her. He does, and the two of them sit and they drink beer. They sit and they drink beer, and they drink beer, and they drink more, and they drink more, and Inanna drinks Anki, the god of wisdom, under the table. At one point, when they've gotten fairly sloshed, he pulls out um, something that the Sumerians called May, 
which is the organizing powers and implements of civilization. Like, for example, the uh, measurements and weights. What constitutes a pound? What constitutes a foot? All of that sort of thing. Rituals in temples. Uh, the proper relationships between men and women. I mean, there's just a whole set of things. So anyway, he brings out some of the may and tells her what they are. And she says, oh, that's really great. Those are great powers. And he says, okay, I'm going to give them to you. And she says, okay, fine, good, I'll take them. And then they drink some more and then he does this again. And he pulls out more may. And again, Anana says, oh, that's really wonderful. I'll take it. And this happens 14 times until Anki has given all of the may that is, all of the powers and the organizing principles that would be needed to have a civilization and rule a kingdom on earth, he has given all of this to the goddess Anana. There's this very cool list in the poem version of the story. So I'll just give you a few examples. He's given her the throne of kingship, the staff, uh, the divine queen priestess, the truth. He gave me descent into the underworld. He gave me ascent from the underworld. Note that's going to be important later. He gave me the dagger and the sword. He gave me forthright speech. He gave me the holy tavern. Holy tavern, yes. He gave me the art of song. He gave me the art of power. He gave me the plundering of cities. He gave me deceit. It goes on and on and on, and it's very interesting because the list includes a lot of skills and powers that we think of as just being bad things, things that you shouldn't do, like plunder a city. But let's face it, if you're a conquesting goddess at the beginning of time, things like that come in very handy. Well, so... Anki is quite drunk, and Inanna now has all of the may, and it's time for her to go home. Anki tells her that she should take the boat of heaven and sail back down the river home because, of course, she's not going to be able to walk back with all of the things that she's now collected. So she loads up the boat, and off she goes. And after a little while, Anki starts to sober up and he looks around and his room suddenly seems quite empty and he starts wondering about some of his possessions and so he calls Abzu his butler and he says where's where's my crown where's my measuring rod where's the power to plunder cities where's where are all of my powers where's all the may And Abzu says, well, my king, you gave them to your daughter Inanna. And he says, really? I gave her the art of power? I gave her the art of the hero? I gave her her all of that? And Abzu says, yeah, you did. You gave her everything. And Enki says, well, where is it now? Abzu says, well, you not only did you give him all to her, but you sent her off in the boat of heaven. And so she's on her way home. 
Well, now suddenly this doesn't seem like such a good idea to Anki that he's given all of these powers to the goddess Inanna. And so he tells Abzu, go and get a couple of my monster-like creatures and send them after the boat, have them go and tell Inanna I want everything back. And if she won't give it back, then take it. So Abzu does, and these creatures suddenly appear, you know, you can imagine them like huge bats or something hovering over the boat, and they call down to her, and they say, Anani, you have to give everything back. And she says, no, well, wait a minute. No, Anki is the god of wisdom, and, I mean, he gave me all of these gifts. Surely you're mistaken. And the monsters say to her, no, we're not mistaken. He's changed his mind. He wants it back. And Inanna says, oh, my God, are you kidding me? He's breaking his promise? He lied to me? He's gonna, he wants to take this stuff back? And so the monsters go, and they try and grab the boat, and Inanna turns to, to Ninshaber. And Ninshaber's called her servant at various points in this poem, but... She's really not a servant the way that we typically think of servants. Ninshaber was once, we're told, the queen of the East. And she's a very, very, very powerful woman, a priestess, goddess even, in her own right. And Anana turns to her and she says, give me some advice, you know, fight by my side, you know, do what you can to help me save the boat and all of these powers we've accumulated. And Ninshaber slices the air with her hand. She utters an earth-shattering cry and the monster-like creatures are sent hurtling back to Anki's realm. Well, when they get back there, then Anki calls his servant to him a second time and says, okay, those guys failed here. Send these 50 giants out after the boat and have them bring everything back. And so the 50 giants go out and they encounter Inanna and Ninshaber on the boat. And again, Ninshaber beats them back. So now Anki sends 50 sea monsters and they grab the boat, but Ninshaber manages to rescue the boat for Inanna again. And now the fourth time, Anki sounds, sends another set of monsters. And I wish I could be more specific, but they're words like kugalgal. And I, I haven't found any reliable translation for what that is. But he sends these monsters out. And again, Ninshaber rescues the boat. And the sixth time he sends them they are almost at the city they're very 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 close to the city and Ninshaber saves the boat again and now she says to Inanna look we're right here so what you need to do is have them open up the channels and the canals let all of the water flow into the canals and just pull us right in you know because as soon as we land at your holy gates at your shrine, will probably be okay. And so Anana says, okay, let's, let's do that. Let the high water sweep up, even, even into the city. And we'll just, every people will just have to get up onto high ground, and, but the water will carry us in and we'll get in there quick. 
And so that's what they do. And the water flows over the streets and over the paths. Nobody's hurt, but the extra bit of water helps the boat of heaven get in and docked at Anana's holy shrine in her city of Uruk. Now, in the meantime, Anki has called his servant for the seventh time and says, okay, where's the boat? And his servant says, well, I have to tell you that she's, she's made it to her temple. At this point, Anki just gives it up. And he says, wow, she has aroused wonder. And she is going to be the mighty, mighty, mighty queen of heaven and earth both. Now, an interesting thing happens because Anana and the people start unloading the May from the boat. And as they take things off, Anana and Ninshabur and their other servants announce to the people the powers that she has acquired on their behalf. And the funny thing is, there are more May than the ones that Anki gave her. Somehow, they have mysteriously multiplied. So now she even has things like the art of women. And whereas we're going to discover in the next set of stories, Anana knows how to wield that art very well. In the end, Anki blesses Anana and says, You've taken the powers, they're yours now. Let the citizens of your city prosper, and let the children of your city of Uruk rejoice. And so this young upstart, Anana, is now established as the powerful queen of heaven and earth. Kind of a neat trick, don't you think? Drinking the god of wisdom under the table? But let's think about that for a second. Beyond the humor of it, there's a message there that's very reminiscent of many trickster stories where you have a god who really does know everything. I mean, he is omnipotent, who nevertheless participates in a trick or treachery uh, with a supposedly lesser deity. This transgression that takes place, the seizing of an opportunity that is part of trickster mythologies and lends flavor to this particular interaction between Anki and Anana, reminds us that crossing boundaries and opportunism and handoffs of power, all of those things are part of the dynamism of a living world. There is room in a system, a system as represented by the omnipotent Anki, for the bending of rules and for movement and fluidity and shifts. That's part of the lesson of trickster mythologies. And I think that's part of the message that's conveyed here. Anana's cunning and resourcefulness, even the bluffs that she uh, throws out at Anki's monsters when they're on the boat, are all appropriate. So the next thing that Anana needs is a husband. She's a queen. She has her city. She has her temple. She has her powers. 
As a result of these powers, she has tremendous love and respect of the people of her city. So the next hymn or story about Inanna involves her search for a husband. And it begins with her going to Utu, the sun god, who is her brother, and asking his advice about who she should marry. Now, Inanna has her choice between a farmer or a shepherd. And Utu feels very strongly that Inanna should marry the shepherd, Dumuzi. But Inanna initially prefers the farmer. She sees the farmer as being a much more valuable, and she sees his work as being intrinsically more valuable. She says that the farmer is the man of her heart because he gathers grain into great heaps. But Utu insists that the shepherd with his uh, wool and milk and cream is a much better partner for her. Anana argues with her brother and then Demuzi enters the poem. And he says, why are you even talking about the farmer? Why do you even speak about him? Whatever he can give you, I can give you something better. I mean, if he gives you beer, I can give you milk. If he gives you bread, I can give you honey cheese. And they get into an argument. And it's interesting because in the poem, Demuzi ultimately says, Queen of the palace, let us talk it over. And the word they had spoken was a word of desire. From the starting of the quarrel came the lover's desire. I love that. Demuzi then shows up at the royal house with cream and milk and calls out to Anana to open the door. And she's not sure what to do, and she runs to her mother. And her mother says, this is the right man. He will be your husband. So Anana takes her mother's direction. She bathes and anoints herself with oil and puts on all of her jewelry and everything while Dumazi is outside waiting expectantly. And then she goes and opens the door for him. And he presses his neck close to her and kisses her. And that's the beginning of their courtship and ultimately their marriage. There's this beautiful, earthy, lovely sequence. If you're familiar with um, the Song of Solomon or some any of those old love songs that were written by the ancient poet kings, then you know what I'm talking about. The poem myth about their courtship contains so many elements that we recognize still. The scented oils, the getting dressed in the right clothes, the putting on of the jewelry, being under the moonlight, kissing. It's just, it's so sweet. And I love some of the things that she says about him then. She calls him her honey man. My honey man, my honey man sweetens me always. He is the one my womb loves best. He calls, she calls him my eager, impetuous caresser of the navel, my caresser of the soft thighs. He is lettuce planted by the water. It's just great stuff. It's funny, you know, we live in a world where, that is saturated with the so-called erotic, uh, mostly images that use the female body, and yet 
there's so little real sensuality or eroticism, don't you think? So Demuzi and Anana have a wonderful, joyful, mutual courtship. They're married and their wedding bed is consecrated in every possible way from the spiritual to the very divinely sexual. And they're very happy together. Now, Anana, by marrying Dumuzi, has made him the king. She has made him the king of Uruk. And he comes into possession of a great deal of authority and power. They have a couple of children together. And the years go by. And when we get to the story that I'm going to tell you next week, the story that's really the point of this extended meditation, that of Anana's descent into the underworld, the honeymoon is over. And by the way, this idea of the honeymoon is found in this Sumerian myth of Anana. The honeymoon is over and they're middle-aged. We find Dumuzi very much preoccupied with this kingdom that he has been given. And we're told that he spends a lot of time sitting on his throne. And there's the suggestion that Anana, now that she has accomplished all of these tremendous things in the first part of her life, is somewhat at loose ends. As a young woman, you know, she had her ambitions to fuel her. First, she had to get the basic accoutrements of the first part of her power, the bed and the throne. She got everything that she needed to be set up in a kingdom. She got a husband and a king and children. And you can translate all of that into the very specific activities that we're engaged in, in our adolescence and through our college years or the years that we're educated and create our households and build our families. So these first few stories take us all through that arc. And here you have Anana goddess of heaven and earth, who is expressing this and living this in a way that I think is very easy for us mere mortals to relate to. Now she's arrived in middle age. Her husband is preoccupied with other things. And what will she do with herself? Well, we're told that she turns her ear to the ground. She was called or something caught her attention. And this is the beginning of her downward journey. She makes a descent and it appears voluntary, but it's actually a necessity. We can't live our entire lives in the upper regions. Even a great goddess has to go down, has to go down into the underworld This reminds me of a poem by Rilke that I really love called The Man Watching. In that poem, one of the things he says is that what we choose to fight is so tiny, but what fights with us is so great. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. That entire poem is about how we are called into conversation or struggle with great ennobling forces, forces that can bring tragedy into our lives, but are nonetheless 
the things that shape us, that can make us wise if we let them. I'm going to close with um, The Man Watching by Rilke. I think I will read that whole poem for you. Next week, we'll pick up the story of Anana again, and I will tell you about her journey from what the Sumerians called the great above to the great below. But first, The Man Watching by Rilke. I can tell by the way the trees beat after so many dull days on my worried window panes that a storm is coming. And I can hear the far-off field say things I can't bear without a friend, I can't love without a sister. The storm, the shifter of shapes, drives on across the woods and across time, and the world looks as if it had no age. The landscape like a line in a psalm book, is seriousness and weight and eternity. What we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights with us is so great. If only we would let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm, we would become strong too and not need names. When we win, it's with small things, and the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. I mean the angel who appeared to the wrestlers of the Old Testament. When the wrestler's sinews grew long like metal strings, he felt them under his fingers like chords of deep music. Whoever was beaten by this angel, who often simply declined the fight, went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand that needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. Please tune in next week for the rest of the story of Inanna. And in the meantime, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.